right, so yeah, kind of double whammy today because we had the time change. We lost an hour of sleep. So I tried to go to bed a little earlier last night because I'm like, yeah, we'll lose an hour of sleep. And then also it's pretty nasty out there today. So we'll see. Our attendance for Sunday school is already lower. We'll see. We do have a meeting after church. So hopefully most of our church council folks can make it. But um, we do have that. But um, yeah, so so it's a, it's a we'll, we'll deal with it, but it's, it's good to be here. So all right, well, in our class, we've been looking at the non-Lutheran Reformation the last few weeks. So I just put up here kind of what we've, we've done so far. Uh, we've looked at not everything, but kind of the major Protestant movements besides Lutheranism, right? So we, we looked at Zwingli, who was down in Switzerland. We looked at Calvin, who was French, but ended up in Switzerland. And we said, you know, he has a profound impact on the, the Protestant church, Calvin does. Uh, and then we looked at the Anabaptists or the Radical Reformation. Uh, we looked, it's not in the notes, but we, we spent maybe half the class last time talking about Baptists kind of in general, um, because in our context especially, that's the dominant denomination around here. As I see y'all chuckling, nodding your heads. I mean, Baptists are everywhere, right? And even in the country, though, nation, you know, the, the Baptists are the largest, by far, the largest, you know, Protestant group in the country. Okay, so we, and we talked about the Baptist. Uh, we talked about the English Reformation uh, last week as well, especially focusing on the Church of England, which is the official state church, uh, which is known as the Anglican Church. So there's the Church of England, which is Anglican, but then you have all these other Anglican church bodies around the world. And we said that the biggest one in the United States is the Episcopal Church, is part of this Anglican Movement, but there's a lot of other you know churches that are just just Anglican as well today, um, and so we we talked about that, and we also said this ties in with the Puritans who we've talked some about, which were a uh, as often happens they were kind of a reform movement within the Church of England. They wanted to change the Church of England away more from some of the Catholic ideas and uh, and, uh, and and practices, uh, but eventually you know of course they're persecuted and eventually. They, a lot of them come to America and other places, uh, and eventually they become known as the Congregationalists today, which we don't have a lot of Congregationalists around here. We do have a Congregationalist college, though, uh, not too far from here at Piedmont, I think we talked about as Congregationalists. But especially if you go up to the northeast part of the country, there's a lot of Congregationalist uh, churches, and that's basically what the Puritans, when they kind of became their own thing, uh, they became known as Congregationalists. And as the name tells you, how is their church government-based? Congregation, right? So that was another big thing of the of the uh, pure uh, the Puritans is they didn't like all the hierarchy in the Church of England. They they thought like basically everything should be uh, on a congregational level, and you see that a lot with the Anabaptists and the Baptists too. They're they're very much congregation based. Even the Baptist denominations like the Southern Baptist Convention, each congregation has a lot of autonomy. Uh, they have a lot of autonomy, and that's why you see. You know, very, uh, a lot of variation there. So, so the Puritans obviously have a big impact on America, uh, but they come out of this English Reformation. But they were uh, kind of rebels within the, the Church of England, and they end up separating to their own thing. We said Anglican theology is kind of interesting to look at because you see different elements there. You see some elements in the uh, the Anglican theology that are are more Roman Catholic. Um, you know, they have more of an emphasis on the saints than a lot of other than Calvinists, certainly. So they would be more similar to Lutherans in that way, but even maybe more so of an emphasis on the saints for them. Um, they have a lot of Calvinistic influence as well uh, in the Anglican Church, and they, they even have some Lutheran influence as well. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting mixture. And uh, like communion, for example, communion, I've, I've read a little bit of some, a couple, like, Trying to figure out what do the Anglicans believe about communion, and I've read some that it sounds pretty Lutheran. It sounds pretty Lutheran. Uh, what they're thinking, you know, like leaning more towards like a real presence. But then I've also read some Anglican stuff where it sounds a little bit more like Calvin. I mean, it's just the spirit. So, so even you know, there's there's kind of this. It, it's an interesting mixture. It's an interesting Anglican theology is an interesting mixture of kind of uh, of Catholic. Of, of, of Calvinism and and a little bit of, of Lutheranism mixed in. And we said, really, um, we'll talk about some of the denominations today. Maybe we'll get that far a little bit. But we said, you know, theologically, you said, what's like the closest to Lutheran? We'd probably say like a, a conserv theologically conservative Presbyterian would probably be 
the closest theologically, uh, but we said what's the closest in kind of style and format would, would probably be Anglicans, you know, because they, they, again, they come right out of the Catholic Church as well without any intermediaries. So they, they retained a lot of the, of the of, you know, the liturgical elements of, of the Western Church. Okay, so this is what we've talked about so far. So today, what we want to talk about, at least first, we'll see how far we get, is we want to talk about the Catholic Reformation. In the Catholic Reformation, which is sometimes called the Counter-Reformation. Okay, because obviously they're trying to, uh, to counter the effects of this Reformation. So um, sometimes, again, this is something maybe in, in school, you studied a little bit in like world history, but we don't really talk too much about it in the Lutheran Church because we're more concerned. You know, we talk more about what the Lutherans were doing and what the Catholics were doing wrong, you know, and all this. But the Reformation, I mean, I've kind of given it away here, but did the Reformation impact the Catholic Church? Absolutely. Absolutely. The, the Catholic Church was, uh, was very much influenced by there was a there was a Catholic Reformation going on during this time too. And there's really a couple things going on that we're going to see. Number one, the Catholic Church, in the higher levels, they finally realize that this is a what? The Reformation is what for them? Yeah, it's a problem, right? They're losing. I mean, at first they see, what was it? I think in one of the videos that Pope made the comment, you read something from Luther, it's like, deal with this drunken little German monk. You know, he, he sees this as a, he sees this as like a, an annoyance, you know? You know, what, what's, the, we're the Catholic Church, right? I mean, the, you know, what, what can, they, what can they do? But over time, they realize this is a real issue. What is it in the 12 step program? For addictions, the first thing is you admit you have a problem, right? And so, so the Catholic Church had to admit we have a serious problem here because this, you know, it gets bigger than just Luther. It gets bigger than just Saxony. This is going on around the, the Western Church. Okay, so so they, they realize we're going to have to kind of, we're going to have to counter this. We're, we're going to have to actually take this seriously and we're going to have to actually do some things or else it's going to get even worse from, from their perspective. The other thing is there's there is some introspection too, where the you know again they're not saying this out loud to the Catholics in the pew they can't understand Latin anyway but you know but they're not they're not saying we're wrong about stuff but they they do internally the, the smarter folks in in the church hierarchy realize we do have some issues that we need to address there are some things we need to clean up because again they're not going to say that openly but they're you know they're saying. You know, some of these criticisms of us, well, maybe there's there's some legitimacy to this. We, we need to we need to reform a little bit. We need to clarify some things because, you know, if these are problems causing people to want to break away from the church, then maybe we need to address that. So, you know, there, there does be whenever you have something happen, you know, say half the members of a church leave the church, which you know happens really regularly, okay, you probably don't want to just say, nah, okay. God, God speed to them. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. You know, I mean, that may happen, but you, you probably want to at least as a church examine and say, what happened, right? What, what were, you know, 50% of our church members left. What, why, you know, what, what were their concerns? And you might determine, well, maybe those people were just being unreasonable. Maybe it was something uh, about, you know, the coffee pot or something and the, you know we can't you know it's really ridiculous but there you might actually identify some things and say well maybe we need to do a better job at this and we need to be more transparent or we need to be more organized or whatever the, the case may be and speaking of coffee i'm going to grab my coffee cup here so <laughs> i'll be right back i just remember but, yeah Um, I think in one sermon I gave some examples that I had researched of like 
church splits, and one of them was over like a bench that somebody had donated, like a like just like a little park bench kind of thing. And where were they going to put that? You know, and like half the people left the church. One of them was literally over the the brand of coffee in the coffee pot. Like somebody changed it, and they didn't like. You know, a lot of people didn't like it. I mean, you know, these these are real things. So sometimes, I mean, they might be silly like that. But sometimes there are real issues here that are going on. You know, that, you know, people are really, really hurt by. And so it's always a good idea to have that introspection. Okay. What, what did we do? What can we maybe, and a lot of times things have happened already. Okay. The thing happened. You can't go back in time, but what can we do going forward where maybe we prevent this from happening again? Go ahead. Uh, it reminds me of the, uh, of the Exodus Bible study on Wednesday where God is so specific about things. He knew, he knew us already. <laughs> yeah, he, he made everything so specific so there was no reason right. to argue about a lot of those things. You know, freedom is great that we have as New Testament Christians, but sometimes you kind of maybe, we might, when you if you're going through any of those things in your church about physical plant, man, it would be nice if, the, if Paul or Jesus just gave us like, he did next. Every church should be designed. This is then. There's no argument, right? Look, God's. This is this is what we're gonna have. This is how big it's gonna be. This is where it's gonna go. So, so freedom is a wonderful thing, right? We we love freedom, especially as Americans. But sometimes, you know, and I mean, I was I've heard several people say, and I thought it's like, you know, we our temptations to sin. You know, it's like, well, God didn't make us robots. Some days you might wish, well, I kind of wish He did make me a robot. Then I, I I wouldn't even want to do any of this stuff, you know. It, it, yeah, so it's it, it's always that tension. But yeah, in the Old Testament, especially, you know, God was was very specific. This is you know, as we're reading in Exodus, this is what it's going to look. These are the dimensions right here. Here's what you're going to make this stuff out of. So there's there's no color carpet. There was no color carpet debate in the tabernacle because there wasn't any carpet. It was portable, you know. So they, they didn't have to worry about They didn't have to worry about what color is the ark going to be. Well, it's going to be gold on the outside because that's what God said, right? So, so there's something to be said for that. But in the New Testament, we do have liberty. But some Christians haven't figured that out yet, I don't think, that we have that liberty because they want to get very, you know, like if this isn't designed the way that I want it, then I'm out of here, you know, kind of thing. It's like, well, you know, get it. show me a scripture first, you know. So, you know. Anyway, I mean, I like pews. Obviously, that's what we have here. I was very happy we got the pews to come over. But, I mean, if I was visiting a church, like if I moved or something, they had chairs, that wouldn't be the, you know, I would not never come back because they had chairs. You see what I'm saying? Because there's no, there's no scriptural command that thou must have pews in your worship space. So, I mean, that would be my preference. But just if I go in somewhere that has chairs, I'm not going to be like, nah, I'm never coming back to this place again. Look at these heretics you know, with their chairs, you know. They're stackable too. And honestly, even going back to the early church, I guess we're on a rabbit trail, but there's a lot of the design of a church's functionality. You know, what what's kind of space do you have? You know, what um, how much square footage do you have? These kind of things. Like the stackable chairs, there are some, I mean, we started out with folding chairs because that's all we had, right? Okay? So, but... If you have, a lot of churches don't have a lot of space. So if you need, a, ideally you have a space dedicated for worship. Okay, ideally. But that, you don't always have the ideal. So if you're renting, say, like a small space, you might need that worship space for fellowship or classes or whatever. So those stackable chairs make sense, don't they? Because we just stack them in the corner and then we can set up tables, Right. Okay, so again, it's, you know, it, sometimes there's preference, but sometimes there's just functionality, you know, functionality. I mean, you know, like we have limited number of classrooms here, you know, so it's like it works for us now, but if we had more people, it, it would be a little tougher, wouldn't it? If we couldn't just put all the kids in one, one classroom. Okay, so yeah, so there's, there's all those things to be considered. In, in the early church, they were mostly meeting in people's homes, right? So, I mean, they, they didn't have a dedicated worship space. They were meeting in, in the, the, usually the person in the, the congregation had the biggest home where they could meet. Okay. All right. Well, back to the question at hand here. Uh, it does start out in the notes talking about the, the, the Reformation doesn't just topple the whole Catholic Church, obviously, right? 
because the Catholic Church, last time I checked, is still around. Uh, and the last time I checked, it is by far the largest uh, branch of Christianity. Okay, it has, there's about a billion Catholics in the world. Out of what, we have like 7 billion people in the world, I think. I think it's around there. So say, if we go with the 7 billion, one out of every seven people in the world is, is a Roman Catholic. Okay, we'll see in America, it's the largest you know, religious body. Uh, for a standalone body, you know, if you add all the Protestants together, there's more of us. But as a, you know, if you're just taking singular organizations, if you will, they're by far the largest. So the Catholic Church is still very large, and it's it's still uh, it didn't topple. So there were other areas though where reformers tried to expand to, and the Catholic Church starts responding to that, and they're able to be more successful in that. Um, and in one of those uh, groups here, um, you can see in your in your study guide, is going to be the Huguenots. And the Huguenots, kind of a funny name, but who are, who are the Huguenots? It says there in the study guide. Y'all got your study guide today? No. Okay, you're gonna need you're gonna need it. So I think so. Let me let me give you one here. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to give you, y'all can share on this okay. today. There you go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the Huguenots were French Protestants. Okay, they, they were French Protestants. And so Protestantism started to, to take some root in France. Okay. But, okay, is France primarily a, a Catholic country today? I mean, a, a Protestant country today? It's primarily Catholic. It's pretty secular. Uh, that even goes back to the French Revolution. Okay, of the late 1700s, there was a very strong anti-Christian element to the French Revolution that we didn't necessarily have here. Okay, uh, but still, you know, most Frenchmen who are religious are, are Roman Catholic today. Okay, um, so the Huguenots, there's a good many of them in France. The, the Protestant teaching is, is finding, you know, listening ears and, and open hearts. Um, but what happens to the Huguenots in France? They get killed. They get killed. Yeah, a lot of them do. You can, so the Catholic Church quick, you know, responds to this militarily very strongly, okay, where they were kind of cautious, remember, with, with Luther, you know, at the beginning. So like, well, we don't want to upset the politics and the apple cart, but they, they, the Catholic Church in France is very much, you could say there was fighting, I mean, because some of the Huguenots fought back, but it was pretty one-sided. You can see there about 100,000 Huguenots were wiped out, 100,000 by the Catholic forces. So, I mean, this is a bloodbath. I mean, there's, you know, I've read a couple accounts of this. I mean, this is like, I mean, there's bodies everywhere in the streets. I mean, so they, the, the Huguenots, they, they moved ag aggressively against them militarily, and uh, I mean, it was basically a slaughter of a hundred thousand of uh, Huguenots died. So, so that put a damper on the Reformation in France, obviously. So again, you see the Catholic Church is now uh, responding very strongly and saying, "We've got to nip this in the bud before France goes Protestant." Okay. The other thing that's different is thinking about the co colonialism that's going on in the time. What was England's solution to religious dissenters in England? What was a big part of their solution? How do we deal with these people? Think about colonial America. Yeah, get up. You, you guys are free to leave. Love it or leave it. You guys don't like it here? You don't like the Church of England? We don't like you either? You can just go to America. Okay, so think about you know, the Puritans, right? But not just the Puritans coming to America. Other religious groups too, like the Quakers, settled Pennsylvania. I got a quote from William Penn in the sermon today. He started Pennsylvania. So, so their solution to dissenters was often let them leave. They even in Maryland was established as a Catholic haven. It was really one of the few colonies where Roman Catholics were allowed to live. So you still have Catholics in England. Now they're Protestant. We'll let them go to Maryland. Okay? So England's solution was let the people leave and go to the new world. And then it gets them out of our hair, right? Because we don't have to, you know, they're not causing as much trouble here. 
and they didn't like the Quakers either because they didn't like hierarchy. They didn't like, uh, they didn't see any value in any kind of titles or positions or they didn't want to pay taxes. They didn't want to fight in the war. So they were seen as troublemakers. So they shipped them out too because um, they're, they're pacifists. But um, lost my train of thought here. So the other thing is, how is that helping England? It's getting them these dissenters out of England. How is it helping them by going to colonial America as well? Because they're still what? They're not here, but they're still what? Yeah, they're still part of the, they're still Englishmen, right? So they're, they're, they, they want to bump up the population of the colonies, develop them, because why do they want the colonies in the first place? Military and economic power, right? That's the whole thing that's going on with this mercantilism and colonialism. So it's a, it's a win-win, right? For the British. Because it's like, okay, we get them out of here and they're not causing problems here, complaining about the Church of England, and they're helping us build our colonial empire at the same time. Okay, go ahead. Kind of like the Assyrians, too, and get them, get them over in Samaria and stuff like that. Yeah, and down and, you know, sure. Down those areas and now sure. we've got our people here. Right, and, and that's happened a lot in history. Sometimes it works out for the country, sometimes it doesn't. I guess in the end it didn't work out for the British because we ended up rebelling. Uh, but even um, Texas, that's how we got Texas. You know, Texas was part of Mexico, but basically no, no Mexicans lived there. It was sparsely populated. Mexico recognized, hey, we got a lot of resources here. We want to develop it. What can we do? We'll let Americans come in and settle it. Well, that worked for a little while, but then when the Americans came, they didn't, they didn't see themselves as Mexicans. They still saw themselves as Americans. They didn't want to become Catholics, they didn't want to give up their slaves and all this. So what did they do? They rebelled, and then we get the Republic of Texas. You know, remember the Alamo, right? So it doesn't always work, but, but sometimes it works fair to others. But the point of all that is the Huguenots and French Protestantism, why doesn't it catch on as much? Because France takes a very different approach to colonial America. Do they let the dissenters go to America? They do not. They'd rather kill them. Okay, they'd rather kill them, let's see. So, so France takes a very different approach. You know, the, 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 the Catholic powers in France say, we're not going to let these people leave and go to America. And their nature of their colonial uh, adventures was different. You know, France, if you look at a map, they had tons of area that they claimed, mostly in Canada and the West. But how many French people actually went there? Not a whole lot. Um, they, they saw them as more of an economic venture. They were trying to get furs and lumber and things. So most of the, the French people that came over, and it's cold in Canada, so you're not going to do as much farming, right? You're not going to be able to set up big tobacco plantations like in Virginia. Um, even New England's warmer than, you know, most of Canada. So they do set up a few settlements like Quebec, you know, which is still very French today, uh, Montreal, but the, they don't take as much land. So they also get along better with the, the native people because they're not taking all of their land because there's fewer of them and they're trading with them. They, they real, they're businessmen. They say, well, why do we want to fight these people? Let them go out, hunt beaver for us, and then we'll just give them some money and they'll give us the furs. You know, it's a, you know, so, so the nature of French colonialism was very different, what they were trying to do than the English, but also just their attitude of they didn't just open the floodgates and say any kind of dissenters just go to Canada. Okay, so so the so the Protestant the French Protestant movement is is crushed basically. So that would be part of this Counter Reformation. Here you see the Catholic Church having success in turning back an aspect of the Reformation. And the Huguenots were mostly Calvinistic, by the way. They were more Calvinistic, and you see them, uh, you know, kind of holding the line there. They hold the line on, on France. Okay, all right. So that so you see that. Now, also, this is, again, a survey course, so we're not going through all of them, but we talked about this a little bit with, like, the small Catholic war and stuff, where there were a lot of wars between Protestants and Catholics during this time in history. Yeah, some of them were very brutal, very bloody wars that took place. And where the, the Catholic Church wasn't able to retake some of these lands, they were able to stop it from getting worse, okay, militarily, to keep more parts of the Holy Roman Empire from departing from Catholicism. And eventually, as we talked about before, the system that emerges is the, the ruler chooses the religion. So whatever, whatever you know, the ruler was, then that's what his people would be. And then eventually they say, well, if you don't like that, you're free to go to another part of the empire. Okay? 
So the Catholic Church realizes we've lost some territory. We're not going to probably get that back. But they are able to stop losing more territory. Because if they had kept ignoring this, it probably just would have kept going. Okay? All right, so they're able to do that. So you see their, their grip on, on Western Europe is shattered, but they're able to kind of hold the line from it becoming worse. Um, and we'll look at the map here in a little bit. All right, so Rome is able to regroup. They're able to keep their losses from being even larger. All right, so the next thing we need to talk about that is very important for the Catholic Reformation and the Counter-Reformation is on your study guide here. It's called the Council of Trent. And I'm going to put the years up here, 1545 up to 1563. Okay, and that, that's important because what when you say they had the council, you're probably thinking, well, they had a nice weekend retreat and, uh, you know, discussed a few things, right? No, this lasted, look, for almost 20 years. This council was ongoing for 20 years, Okay. So the Council of Trent, I mean, this is, you know, in, in the history of the Western Church, in the history of Catholicism, certainly, this is extremely important. I mean, it's, you know, people today, some people, they remember even Vatican II and how big of an impact that had on the church. I mean, this, this is on that level probably even more so because the, the survival of the church, what it's going to look like is, is at stake here. So they meet at, at Trent for almost 20 years. Uh, and they're going through things. And, they, and this is where you say they're, they're reforming certain things, how they're, they're doing certain things structurally. They, they, they begin to understand a little more. Well, we have to have capable people in positions of theological and political leadership. It can't just be this system of whoever was related to who and, you know, who gave, who gave a nice donation to the church. Oh, you get to be a bishop. Remember they wanted to do that with Luther? That's how they, they dealt with people who were across the street. They kind of kicked them upstairs. Well, do you think he'd want to become a bishop? You know, it's, you know, that'll make him happy. You make him a bishop, and then the problem goes away, you know? You know, in American history, that's how we got Teddy Roosevelt as president. Did you know that? Not with the Catholic Church, but he was kind of a rabble-rouser, right? He would speak his mind and do things differently. So the Republican Party decided, let's make him vice president. So you think that's weird because it's like a promotion, right? But really, is that, what does the vice president do? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Some more so than others. But, you know, that really the only constitutional job that the vice president has is break a tie in the Senate. That's it. Which now it's the Senate's pretty close, but it's a kind of a bigger deal. But, you know, unless it's like that close, I mean, they really don't do anything. So the president gives them stuff to do and... But I mean, really, I mean, honestly, think back all the presidential admission, like, what are, what are they doing? How often do you see them on TV? And I mean, you, you just don't. They're, they're kind of like a yes man for the, or a yes woman. Now we have a woman, but says it for the president, right? Everything they're doing is great. Things are great, you know? And, and they're kind of like that backup quarterback. They're the clipboard carrier. They show a shot of them on the sidelines every now and then. But unless something happens to the quarterback, they're irrelevant, right? The, the long snapper at least is going to play in certain situations. The backup quarterback, probably not, you know, unless there's an injury or you're ahead by, you know, 50 points or something. So, so, so this is, that was a strategy that's now, again, it backfires because what happened, President McKinley is assassinated and Roosevelt becomes the youngest president we've ever had. Okay. 42 years of age. All right. So, so the Catholic Church though is doing a lot of, there's a lot of nepotism. And, and corruption inside so we got you know we gotta clean some of that up. Not to say it goes away completely, but they're saying we gotta have kind of capable people, you know, leading this thing. Okay? And of course a lot of the private lives of the popes for many centuries had been scandalous and things like that, you know. So they so they, they want to reform some of those things. Um, indulgences. Remember that was the thing that got Luther fired up. Do they get rid of indulgences? No. No. But what, what do they say about it? They have indulgences today. They issue them from time to time. But what do they say about the indulgences that needs to change? This is one of the things that got Luther, it's really the thing that got him mad at first before he understood they were theologically dumb. But what, what were they what, what were they doing to these poor people? They were selling them, yeah. saying, you know, with a promise of 
something they couldn't deliver, and these people were in abject poverty. So they say, well, maybe we shouldn't be like hawking the indulgences as a way to make money, because that, that's a bad look. Luther had exposed that, and again, I don't think they had internal polling back then, but they, they understood this is, this is something that people, it was exposed, basically, for what it was, and people don't like it. Okay, so they don't get rid of indulgences, but they're like, well, maybe we should stop selling them. Okay, the, the church moves, the Catholic church moves away from that. Um, so, so there are some reforms in cleaning up. The other thing is, that they realized from the Reformation, Luther certainly brought this up, and others, is if you read the statements of the church throughout the history of the church, do some of the, the, all these church fathers that they say they believe in and these councils that have declared things, do they always agree with each other? No. You know, does Luther be like, well, this guy said this, and now you're saying this? You know, what? what's the deal here? I'm using the scripture, okay? You know, because he said, uh, what was it? Probably said that uh, he, he believed the word of God rather than councils and popes, which have often contradicted themselves, which he said. You know, so... Uh, so they realize some of the things that they're saying to people that this is the way it is, they need to formally like adopt a statement saying this is the way that it is. And, and this is kind of the way the Catholic Church still works today there and throughout history. There are things that become doctrine basically by practice, by people doing them, but there's no formal declaration. Um, the Pope being infallible from, you know, when he speaks from the Pope chair, they say, he cannot be wrong about doctrine, right? He is like the final authority. Uh, un cathedra, you know, when he speaks as the Pope about doctrine, they would say it's infallible. You know, that he's the, the final arbitrator. Uh, when did that get codified into the Catechism of the Catholic Church? A year. When do you think that happened? 700 AD, 800 AD, 1500? 1960. Not, not quite that late, but it was 1870. 1870. Okay. Yeah, so, but I mean, I'm saying people would think it was way before that. Now, was that essentially what was happening? What the Pope said goes, yes. But there, there wasn't a, a doctrinal thing. Um, the, uh, I, I have the sheet in front of me, but I have interesting sheets, like all the dates, these doctrines. I think it was the Assumption of Mary into Heaven. It was like 1850. Okay. Now, most Catholics were believing that before, but there was no doubt. So you go back to Trent, a lot of these things about indulgences, justification by faith alone. They're looking at, we don't really have a statement on this. You know, we're saying it's, it's, that's not right, but we don't really have a So they, they pass a resolution that says, if you believe in justification by faith alone, you are an anathema to the church, which is basically you are outside of the church. Yikes. That has never been repealed, by the way. That has never been repealed from the Council of Trent. Okay? So, apparently we're still in anathema. <laughs> you know, it's on paper anyway. It's Lutheran folks and Calvinists too. Right? But, um, of course, they'll tell you, hey, we believe you have grace, but it's grace plus these other things. So, the point is, a lot of these things that they were wrangling about the Re Reformation, Trent looks at them and they come to a conclusion and they put together a formal church document that will become the catechism of the Catholic Church, and it becomes basically this is the, this is the official position. Okay, now they also have a doctrine in the Catholic Church, um, I can't remember the Latin term, but it basically means always the same. So the idea is that if they change something effectively, it was really like that all along, which is a good little thing. Quite, it's pretty good, right? Yeah. Which they would say, well, we're just you know, clarifying it. But, I mean, you look at positions, I mean, throughout the history, there's like, they're saying this one time, they're saying this, these two things contradict. But if they make a, a statement that changes, well, it was always like that. The church has always believed that. It's pretty, pretty convenient, you know. So, uh, never, wrong. never wrong. I mean, it's a pretty good little system, right? For that. But, so the point is, that's a big part of Trent, is that they're clarifying and they're codifying and they're, they're putting out these statements. I mean, in the catechism of the Catholic Church, it's huge. I mean, our small catechism, it's pretty small. Even the large catechism is only like 120 pages. I mean, this thing, like, whenever you see quotes from it, it's like, you're in the thousands. You know, this is point two thousand four hundred and twenty-six says this about Mary or whatever. So, um, so it's a, you know, it's a, um, it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing. And it, of course, it can be, 
adapted. I'm trying to think when the latest one came out. It might have been back in the 90s or something, but it's a pretty massive thing. Um, so this is a lot of what's happening at Trent, is this reorganization, this restructure, this clarifying of this is what we believe, and if you're outside of this, you're outside of the, the position of, of the church, they would say, because they claim, you know, we are the, the Western, we are the church, basically, uh, the mother church. So, so Trent is pretty important, and this is, helps the Catholic Church kind of push back against the Reformation. The other thing that they do is they form this, uh, oh, did you have your hand up? Or just scr scratching? Okay, <laughs> go ahead. I'll write the next thing up if you have a question. The next thing is, three, uh, let's see, the Enlightenment about 1648? Yes, that's what we're going to do after we finish up the Reformation part. We haven't got there yet. We're still in that the Catholic response of the Counter-Reformation. The Jesuits. Yep, the Jesuits. Just put them up there. The Jesuits are formed as a, uh, as I guess, like an organization within the Catholic Church. And there's a lot of focus put on the Jesuits. And they are kind of, a, I guess you'd say, an elite group of, of zealous uh, priests and monks, okay, of clergy. Uh, are the Jesuits still around today? Yeah. Yes, they are. What do they run? Jesuits often run certain things in the Catholic Church today. What, what do they have a big influence in? Missionary work. Missionary work. We're going to see that then. But if you want to form hearts and minds and teach them to believe the way you want them to believe, what would you want to control? School. Schools. Uh, uh, you know, the, the people who are actually Jesuits are a fairly small number. Again, this is kind of like an elite force within the Catholic Church, uh, but they control a large part of the schools. Um, Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. is a Jesuit institution. Um, in Atlanta, there's a very large Catholic school, the Marist School. It's run by Jesuits, okay? So a lot of the a Catholic education goes to the Jesuits because, again, you know, that can't be you know, overstated when you have young people's attention and you have them basically there in front of you for a good portion of their day, you can pour a lot of stuff into them. Okay, so if you're a religious group, you want to make sure that the doctrine they're being taught is what, what you want them to be taught. Okay, go ahead. We had a California governor, I think it was Jerry Brown, he was at school in the Jesuit schools. Really? Yes. Okay, okay. I didn't know that about Jerry Brown. I, I mean, I don't know what he ever learned. But yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't. Yeah. He wasn't. Like he wasn't yeah. yeah. So, well, maybe learn compassion for the poor and things like that. But you know, you do look at some of these folks, like you know, people that you know, you see prominent politicians and, and celebrities, and sometimes like you see their religious background, you're like, whoa, something, something, oh, something went off kilter there. You know, it's like you know. You look at some of these celebrities, like they went to Catholic school, you know, Madonna, you know, uh, 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 Lady Gaga, they all were products of Catholic schools. Well, something, something happened here, you know, something happened. Richard Nixon was a Quaker, right? Okay, so he, he did end the Vietnam War, though, right? So there's the pacifism, right? You know, Richard Nixon, so, but, you know, so again, that's probably not the first thing people think of Richard Nixon. Oh, yeah, the Quaker president, right? But he was, that was his religious upbringing, as was our Herbert Hoover. We've had, for a small group as there, we've had two Quaker presidents, Hoover and, and uh, Nixon, both, both Quakers. Yeah? My mother's sister was a Quaker preacher. Really? Okay, yes, they have women ministers. They were, you know. This yeah. yeah, okay. Yeah, so when I sold watermelons, I had a sweet uh, older lady that came every week, and she was, she was a Quaker, you know, and I saw, like, she had some kind of sticker on her car that was against... This is like when the Iraq war was raging. It was some kind of anti-war sticker. And I looked at the fine print. It said Society of Friends, which I knew was, that's the, it's kind of like Anglicans. You know, the people are Quakers, but the church it doesn't say Quaker. First grade, it says Society of Friends. Okay. And so I, you know, we had a few conversations. It was a sweet, sweet lady, you know, but, you know, she was very much into her, you know, you meet all different people. And then Joe, I had a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses that would come regularly to try to give me the, 
watchtower stuff and all that, you know. So I kind of had a conversation with one lady one day and she never tried to give me any more stuff again, but she kept coming back. I was like, I might have just lost the customer here, but you know, it's it like she started it, you know, she gave me this magazine. So like I tried to give her something, uh, literature and she wouldn't take it. And she said, I said, well, why can't you take this? She said, well, this is about your, your religion. We're not allowed, you know, I'm not allowed to, to take that because they're not, they're trained. Don't take anything from people. Sometimes they will, but most they're trained that. And I said, well, this little magazine you're giving me, it's telling me about your religion, right? That's not what this is about. And she said, yes. So I said, well, we'll just have an exchange here. You know, I'll take your little magazine. You take my little tractor, but she wouldn't do it. So she never tried to give me another uh, watchtower. And the other one is called Awake is the name of it. If you see that, it'll be like Awake. It'll have some kind of like practical living thing on the front that catches people telling you know, how to, we're talking about anxiety, how to de-stress your life. Oh, let me read that. But then when you get in there, it's telling you, you know, it's all telling you about Job. You know, then there's articles about Job's witness and how wonderful that is and everything. But yeah, they, they won't usually take your stuff. You're supposed to take theirs, but you know, they, they're trained. Don't, don't take any because they see that as you know, the devil's work, you know, don't take it. Yeah. So, um, so where were we? So the Jesuits. Okay. So they formed the Jesuits. And again, we are in the area of colonialism and you mentioned missions did. So what did the Catholic countries, especially Spain and Portugal, but that are the big colonizers this time, France to some extent, but again, they're not, they did send some missionaries. What are they, when they're coming into the new world, the Americas, what's also coming with them? Catholicism. Okay. Especially with, with Spain, this was a major goal was to convert the native people, the ones that didn't die from disease, because a huge number died from disease, unfortunately, because they had no immunity to some of these European things. So when you look at the, the colonial period, the certain countries especially were very aggressive in their missions. Now, France wasn't as aggressive. They wanted money. They wanted the trade. But they did, guess what? They had Jesuit missionaries that went out amongst the Indians. So these Jesuits are going out to the um, throughout not only Europe, they're going to this new world that's opening up from colonization to Europeans. And, and uh, the Catholic Church is at the forefront of this. I mean, Spain had an entire, like they call it the encomienda system, which in many cases turned out to be kind of like a forced labor system, you know. But it was, it was basically to, to make the American Indians Spanish Catholics, basically. You know, it was run by priests and things like that. And there were some priests who wrote things that, you know, critical of some of the things the colonizers were doing because a lot of things they did, some of them were good, but a lot of them were, were not really Christian. You know, again, you know, you read in the New Testament, I don't, again, I don't see anywhere where we're supposed to force people to convert to Christianity. I mean, I don't see any model of that. You know, we're supposed to go out and, and preach the word and the Holy Spirit works. But I don't see anything in there where, you know, Jesus or the Apostle Paul or Peter say, well, what we got to do is get an army, we go into Galatia, we conquer it, and then we, we force baptize everyone and catechize them. I, I don't see it. Maybe if you can see it, let me know. That, that's not what Jesus said. He said, go out and preach, baptize, and, and teach, right? In the Great Commission. That's that's what he said to do. He didn't say conquer and, and force to convert. Um, but the bottom line is the efforts of these uh, Catholic countries in the New World were they when I say successful as far as the rate of conversion. That's I'm getting not we're not getting into all the methods and debating that some were better than others. You know there were some very kind you know priests and all this, but I'm just talking about if your goal is to make all these people Catholic, did it work or did did it not work? It worked. It worked. worked really well. Worked really well. Okay, again we're not here to debate the methodology today, um, but the it worked. So this, as far as the Catholic response to the Reformation, this was a big part of it. Okay, we're losing ground in Europe, but there's a big world out there. So what we need to do is we need to get, you know, kind of an elite force together, and we need to go out and we need to make these people Christians. We need to make them Catholics, particularly Roman Catholics. Um, to this day, if you go to Latin America, what are most people? Roman Catholic, right. Now, in the last generation, the Catholic Church has lost a lot of ground in Latin America, and they're concerned about that because so many Protestant missionaries, especially from America, have gone there. Um, especially the Pentecostals have been incredibly successful down there. 
Baptist to some degree, but especially Pentecostals. I mean, if you meet a Hispanic person today, most likely they're Roman Catholic. But there's a decent chance they're probably some form of Pentecostal. Okay? Um, a couple of them came to our church one time. I think you were there that day. Yeah. It's a pastor and his wife, and they were looking for a place where their church could meet, because kind of like us, they had a situation where I don't know if we could afford the rent. And, you know, he didn't, they didn't speak a lot of English, but of course, I, he gave me a card, and I Googled their church and watched it. It was, it was definitely Pentecostal, okay? It was, de- it was, it was wild, you know, watch this. The service was like three hours long, you know, it was, it was pretty wild, but, uh, it wasn't, they, I guess there's like, a, like the mother church of what, uh, well, there's all over the world, apparently it's a pretty large denomination, but there's a, a really big church they had down in Norcross, and then this was like kind of a, a mission post of that out in commerce. But, um, but anyway, they, they've lost some ground to the Protestants, especially the Pentecostals and Baptists. There's a few Lutherans down there, not, not a whole lot, but, uh, there are, especially in Brazil, uh, there's the, actually the Brazilian church is our largest partner church around the world. Which again, I know you have to adjust that for inflation because the Missouri Synod's not in fellowship with a lot of Lutheran bodies. But if all we have, we're in fellowship, I think, with almost 40 different Lutheran church bodies around the world. The biggest one is, is the Lutheran Church in Brazil. Okay, again, so there's not a lot of Lutherans in Brazil, but there's a decent number. Why? A bunch of Germans went there back in the 1800s. Okay, again, follow the Germans, follow the Scandinavians, you're going to find them, you know? So, yeah. Shoshana was looking around for jobs, and on the LCMS website, they, they needed a, a person in Dominican Republic. She's like, I'm going to move to Dominican Republic? Warm all year? Okay. Yeah. She's like, no, I'm not doing that. So, you know, but, uh, so, but the, but even the point, all that to be said, the point is, oh gosh, it's almost 10.15, isn't it? All right. We'll, we'll finish this up and, uh, and then we'll, we'll go on. But the point is that these Catholic countries, a big part of their response was they were successful. And again, even to this day, it's, it's not the stranglehold they once had where 95% of the people are Catholic, but still, you know, say 70, 75%. I mean, Latin America is overwhelmingly Catholic. Now, and as, as Christianity goes on, they bring it to Africa, they bring it to Asia. When I was in Morocco years ago, there's a big Catholic church in the capital city. Why? Because the French colonized it. Okay. Now, almost everybody's Muslim, but the few people that aren't, they're they're Catholic. There, there was one Protestant church out in the open anyway, because a lot of the church is underground because it's illegal to convert from Islam. So they would say, well, if you're already Catholic, okay, you know that's the deal. But you you can't you're not supposed to convert. We worked with the, the, the church that we attended. It was they had one Protestant church, city of like a million people. That's it, and they had basically three congregations in this church. Um, there was an English-speaking congregation, which the pastor was, was a Baptist guy. They had a Korean congregation, and they had a French-speaking congregation, all in the same building. It was a decent-sized church, but you think a city of a million people, that's like the only Protestant church in town. Okay, but there was a big cathedral, too. Okay, so, so the point is that the, the Catholic Church is successful in pushing back against the Reformation, and, and it could have been worse for them. And they find new areas to expand into. All right, we're out of time, but we're going to forget this if we don't look at it now. Turn to page nine in your uh, in your uh, packet, and you should have a map there. It should be easy. Just find the map. I think there's only one map. If I had more time, I'd give you more maps. I like maps, and they have to get one sense. But you see this. So this this is Europe in 1600. So the Reformation is still going on, but. You know, a lot of the big stuff's already happened, right, that we've talked about. So as we, we wrap up this Reformation time period, you see on the map here, I don't know if you can see it on the video, but I think it's on the PDF. This might be in the PDF on Sermon Audio. The kind of purplish-pink areas, what are those? Those are areas that became Protestant. Okay, you see that? And then the the kind of the tan color, what are the, what is that? That's areas that remained Roman Catholic. There's a little bit of blue on there, which is, that's basically like Bavaria um, in southern Germany. What do you have there? You've got kind of a mixture, don't you? Okay. And of course, Germany is kind of like right there in the middle towards the top. Okay. So you can see that. And then out in the east, you have 
the Muslims still control like Greece and into Russia, parts of Russia. Even remember at this time, it, you know, so they, they in North Africa, of course, we, we looked at that earlier, the Muslim expansion and there's wars going back and forth. Uh, but then, um, you know, you got the Eastern Orthodox churches trying to hold on over there and, and they do. Uh, but what land wise does the Catholic church maintain control of most of Europe? Yeah, yeah they do. Well over half of it. Okay. Um, region, north, south, east, west. Where does Protestantism take root? North and something like if you say like England, maybe Western. So kind of the northern part. Okay. You've got what becomes Germany there over in Prussia. You know, that, that was a big uh, state up in Scandinavia and Norway and Sweden over here to the Netherlands. Um, and then you see down that Switzerland down there. You got a little pocket down there in France. And then, of course, England. Okay, so, so Northern Europe and some parts of Western Europe, they go Protestant. But Southern and Eastern Europe, they remain Roman Catholic. Okay, is it still pretty much that way today? At least on paper, yes. Okay, it's still that, you know, you still have that in Europe today. Okay, if you go more Southern, more like to find Catholics. Go North, find Protestants. Okay. So I think this hopefully maybe helps us get a visual. So all this stuff that we've talked about, this is basically kind of where we end up in 1600. Again, it goes a little beyond that, but you can see there, Protestant definitely, Protestantism definitely has taken root. Okay, but it, it, the Catholic Church did not collapse, and they actually expanded into other parts of the world. Now, Protestants, of course, came to America, North America, uh, but a lot of... Catholics as well for uh, the conversion process. So, so that's the Catholic Reformation and how the Catholic Church responded to it. Okay, and again, you know that that's what happened. So the, they were able to regroup, to codify some things, and kind of push back against the Reformation. And if they had not done that, that map would look even different, much different. Okay, I mean you see, especially with those Huguenots. I mean France is a big chunk there. If France had gone Protestant, I mean ever really changed things. It really changed things. I mean, who knows what happened? Would you even have the French Revolution? Who knows? Okay, who knows? Um, any questions or comments? It's time. But that that's a good stopping point because we've basically now finished the Reformation. You believe it? Again, most of the class <laughs> will never finish if we spend it. But again, that, that was the biggest chunk of the class, especially Lutheran Reformation. But we did want to spend a few weeks looking at, you know, there were other things happening too. Uh, with the Reformation. So we basically have finished up the Reformation, and I think Dick mentioned it earlier. Next we're going to go, well, what happens after that? And we'll get into the Enlightenment, and there's another little chart about the different denominations. We may talk about that a little bit. That's kind of interesting as well. All right, anything else?